Woo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday! It's Tuesday! Now I'm doing a little jig over here on this Tuesday. You're doing a jig? What does that mean? It's a little dance. Uh-huh. I call it like a polka. Usually we warm up for this podcast and I feel like it's the afternoon. Uh-huh. I'm like twerking, grinding, getting low. And it's 5.30 right now and I feel like that's polka vibes. 5.30 a.m. is polka time? Is yeah. that what you're saying? I mean, I feel like it's not quite – I feel like my quads are not quite activated to twerk. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> I'm like, a little sore. Yeah, the yeah, day's yeah. a little young. Yeah. Yeah, I always think about that. When they tell you to drop your booty down low to the floor, there you go. I'm like, I can't do it. I don't really have the mobility in my ankles or in my knees <laughs> to drop the booty that low. So the polka maybe is made for those types of vibes when you have reduced mobility. It's so true. Every time I do like a squat, like a, a regular back squat, I'm like, how do people go so low? It shocks me. It is mind blowing. Yeah. And then I see Leo and I'm like, when did we lose it? Because yeah. Leo, our little baby can do that very easily. Meanwhile, myself, I'm like, my butt is way off the ground. His mobility is outstanding. I feel like he would go into the PT's office and he'd be the only person in the world where they're like, you know what? Your glutes are okay. <laughs> yeah. Because when I go in, they're like, no. And actually yesterday I went and did some back squats because I'm still dealing with this little knee boop thing. And I was like, well, what better time to get myself super duper sore than right now? So I was doing the squats, looking in the mirror, and it is so hard to get anywhere close to 90 degrees. And then whenever we watch like a YouTube channel that involves people seriously lifting, like a weightlifter, they drop not just to 90 degrees. They're like baseball catchers. They go all the way down while lifting like 400 pounds. How is that possible? I know. I love that you comment on the offset between the brain and reality. Because yeah. when I'm squatting, I'm like, I'm so low. I'm a yeah. beast. Then I see a video of it. And it like barely looks like my butt moves. And <laughs> it's a problem. Okay. But how is your knee feeling? You booped your knee. Yeah. And Almost two weeks ago now. I want to follow up on this story because yesterday I came upstairs and you were just like grinding your knee with a butter knife. Uh-huh. And knowing your persistence and just kind of your overall vibe. I'm shocked your knee is still in existence on your body. Okay, so I go through stages of grief with any injury. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's not grief, it's stages of maybe acceptance. I'll reframe it slightly because that's kind of what the stages of grief are. Well, at first, I'm like denial, right? So I try to work back. And then eventually, I reach a point where I'm just like, fuck it, I'm going to try anything. And so yesterday, I read about this type of massage that will like can involve a butter knife. And so I went to town on my knee. Uh, and you know what? It feels way better. So <laughs> yeah. Megan, I'm just saying, if you're out there and you're unsure about an injury, maybe after two weeks, you just reach a fuck it point and you go to town with a butter knife. To be fair though, I feel like your fuck it points usually precede, like actually yeah. something really good happening. So when you woke <laughs> up this morning and said, I felt good, I was like, oh fuck. I was expecting your leg to be like, be hanging off your body and it almost always resolves. So yeah. you're clearly like a magician in all ways of that word. We're going to have a number of artisan butter knives now <laughs> yeah. for different parts of the body. It's like the knee is a little bit more delicate. But if I have a quad issue, we're going to get a butter knife that's the size of a giant. It's going to be four feet long. It totally reminds me of our wedding. So we had like a very small wedding and I put together one of those like wedding registry things. Yeah. And on it, I put utensils, but I didn't realize I put one fork, one knife, and one spoon. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they were so expensive. They were so expensive. It was $45 for a fork, knife, and spoon. <laughs> so I assumed it was everything. And where we come in our lives, that's like 12 sets of everything. That's yeah. the quality we are used to. Exactly. So I wonder if it was our wedding butter knife. Oh my God. I don't know. I didn't even know. Honestly, they looked really nice and fancy. I have no idea what's happened to them in existence, but yeah. maybe it was, and maybe they had magical healing powers. It, it's like Excalibur. Isn't that the King Arthur sword? <laughs> yeah. That is the butter knife we got that can heal anything. <laughs> okay. And let's take that energy into this awesome episode. We can't wait for this one because we're going to talk about Megan's race. We're also going to talk about the big altar races a little bit, which we were at. Uh, double threshold workout. A new climbing policy on eating disorders, 
Iron and Mental Health, a follow-up on the discussion last week, a study on the effect of exercise and depression, um, protein science follow-up, and finally, news and fun things, which includes lots of really interesting things, my favorite being on the Major League Baseball uniform scandal. Well, I asked you about this yesterday. So all you have in the pod outline just says MLB uniforms. Yes. And we were driving last night, and I was like, tell me about MLB uniforms, and you wouldn't tell me. No. You said you're leaving it for today as a surprise, and I was going to Google it. I was like, I should be informed. Uh But you know what? I didn't. Just wait. I'm going to be surprised. I'm yeah. going to sound like a moron probably, but I'm going to be surprised. It'll be fun. Listeners, stick around because when Megan hears what is happening right now in Major League Baseball, she's going to shit her pants. Oh, but actually, I'm going to shit my pants first because there is so much sexy science coming ahead. There's a lot of good stuff on here. So I'm excited for it. So much good stuff. And, you know, mix of training theory, mental health, lots of fun things. So what we want to start with, though, what I want to start with is your race, Megan. You were in California and while you were there, you suited up. You put on the swap crop top and you threw down for the overall win at the Montero Mountain Trail Half Marathon. Oh, it was so fun. It's like, ah, oh, it was amazing to get to race again. I've missed it so much. Uh, I feel like I've had this little bit of a journey and putting on the crop top and standing on the starting <laughs> line, it was so special. And it was also a backyard race too. And you were going to come out and race. So I had this elaborate plan. I was going to race on Saturday. Yeah. Then you're going to race the Big Alta 28K on Sunday. And you still came out to support me in California for this backyard race with Leo. And uh, it just meant a lot. Like I feel yeah. like things are so much more special when shared. And you were there and it was amazing. Well, you might have liked that I was there. The woman next to me on the plane flight did not. <laughs> yeah. Because I'd used Leo as a lap infant. And he's almost 16 months now. And anyone who's been around a toddler that age knows that there's no such thing as personal space or chilling on a plane. Thankfully, he doesn't cry, but he does really very much want to touch this woman's shoulder <laughs> over and over while she was sleeping and then just smile at her. And she was not having it. But we did get out there. You did solo dad travel. Solo dad travel. It's a lot. Actually, it gave me context. I was really queuing into Leo on the way back home when yeah. we were together. So you came out and joined me out there. And then we flew home together. And Leo was basically doing an ultra across our seats. <laughs> he was just going back and forth across our little three-seat aisle yeah. over and over and over again. The way he occupied himself was, in the way I occupied him, was I put him just a little bit low on my shoulder. And then he looked up at me and he just kept putting his fingers into my nose and my mouth. <laughs> so we got every virus that is on that plane and that is in that airport. Um, we'll see what happens there. So far, feel pretty good. Though your Oura ring did give you a warning this morning. So maybe something's going on. It was like high body temperature. <laughs> I love that you did that though, because I feel like he's going to go to daycare or preschool at some point and just like be sticking his fingers up kids' nose. <laughs> just like, dad taught me this. This is great. <laughs> what better way to get to know you? You know, sometimes to you know, do to break the ice. They'll do trust falls or ask you where you're from. <laughs> it's just like, Let me stick my finger up your nose. <laughs> His microbiome is going to be so good. But it's actually very eye-opening for me because I was out in California. I, I was out there for a couple of days, training, working in the redwoods. It was so much fun. But Leo wasn't there with me. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was like, why am I recovering so fast? <laughs> why is all my work like done and ready? And yeah. I don't know. Life with Leo is amazing, but it also was that eye-opening. Like I haven't had a lot of time without him. And it was pretty eye-opening actually about like the demands of being mm -hmm. a parent and recovery. And it is, a, it's worth it, but it's a slightly different context. Yeah. I wish you could call babies like you call Ubers. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'll take the baby for this time. And it's like, someone take the baby away. Um, no, it's, it's great with Leo, but it is true that sometimes, especially the work context, because what we talked about a lot is you're trying to train like the professional athlete you are. Right. And that requires a, a huge time investment. And on top of that, you're working multiple jobs. And your tendency in the past would be to be like, you know what's better than two jobs? Three jobs. <laughs> and that work thing needs to fall by the wayside 
or the athletics will. And I feel so much for, you know, people that are trying to balance all of these different elements. Um, but even if you don't have kids, like those, that balancing act can be so difficult. I think a kid just makes it so, you know, the difference, the only difference between a kid and a puppy is that you can't necessarily put the kid in a crate. The, actually, the only difference really is that the crate can't have a top. <laughs> yeah. You can put a kid in the crate as long as there's no top. That's the only thing separating the two. It's so true. But actually in this like phase of life, I really have been trying to embrace like a pro athlete mindset. Like yeah. I feel like for me, like as I went through med school and PhD, like it really fell by the wayside for a long period of time. And now it's nice just to be like, I'm going to take this time and dedicate it to athletics. But it's also a lot of time. So much time. The amount of time it takes to train, to strength train, to ice bath, to recover. It's a lot. To look at your booty in the mirror? Yeah. That's a good 30 minutes of your day, Megan. No, I'm doing the polka right now. I'm not okay. looking at my booty. I'm looking at my arms flapping like little uh, little things in the wind. Well, I don't know. While you do your squats, you need to check your form. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes like check that form a little bit too hard. Actually, it's true. Sometimes when you're down there, I actually – sometimes it takes me a really long time to strength train. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, it it's like no phones, hour. no chucking my booty, yeah. just like rolling right through it. And if I do that, it cuts it down about a half hour. You know how they say that people accuse – others of doing what they do themselves. I check your booty, so I choose you <laughs> of checking your booty. Okay, so overall win at this race. It was really cool because when you came through the mile like seven area, you'd already gone up and down a mountain. Um, you were actually in second with third hot on your heels. So I got to see you getting frisky, you know, like being like old school Megan, I'm going to catch this guy. And you caught him on the final climb to take the overall. So how are you feeling about it? What are your reflections on the race so far? It was so much fun. I actually think it's the first time I've ever won a race outright. And I was yeah. thinking about it and I was like, why is that? And I was like, it's because David always beats me. <laughs> we do like 90% of races together. And actually, I would much rather have you in the same race as me, as opposed to like you having a knee boop and coming in second to you. But I don't know. Winning overall, that's oh, it was pretty, pretty cool. It was pretty fun. It was pretty special. <laughs> well, actually, they <laughs> You're had- going to come just hit me with a crowbar <laughs> yeah. before every race we do. They're like, you can't beat me by 25 minutes. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was really fun because there was an out back on the course. And it was the first time that I've, I was actually in first and I got passed on the, to the climb and yeah. then I got passed on the downhill. But as I was running back downhill, I got to yell wahoo and huzzah to so many people. So many podcast listeners. So many podcast listeners. It was so fun. But it was also like, because I was the first person coming down, I got to surprise them all too. Yeah. Occasionally like check someone with a shoulder. I'm really sorry. I collided with like four people. It's hard <laughs> when you're running, when you're running cross against people on like technical, like tight single track yeah. and you're the first one coming through, people are very surprised. And so I imagine you have that experience all of the time because you often win races. <laughs> But usually there's like a bunch of men or, or women that are like plowing in the way for me. Yeah. I was like, you're so amazing. As I hit him with an elbow in the side <laughs> yeah, of the face yeah, by yeah. accident. Actually, the people that I collided with were very nice. Yeah. They were understood. They're like, you go, girl, as I just like checked them in the shoulder. You're a little bit lighter than me. My old school football uh, ability starts to come out and I become full like free safety. <laughs> just absolutely wrecking people. Um, okay. Other reflections from the race. Um, how about the Ultrafly shoes? You really like those, right? Oh, I love the Ultrafly shoes. So it's the first time I've been like a, a Hoka Speedgoat girl for the longest time. Speedgoat Evo. Speedgoat Evo. Specifically. Yes. To the point where I am hoarding them like soup cans in our closet. Yeah. And here's my hot take. I actually think I like the Nike Ultraflies more than the Hoka Speedgoat Evo, which is a statement I never imagined myself saying. I think that's a coping mechanism because they discontinued the Speedgoat Evo. They just had the regular Speedgoat, which so is we, nothing compared to the Evo. We like found them through podcast listeners, imported them from France. They've been hanging out in our closet. And it's actually so nice to go on trail runs with the Nike Ultrafly because I don't feel like I'm hoarding yeah. soup cans anymore. I'm like, this is, I can like 
buy these online. What a great feeling. <laughs> you just like, you can't fire me. I fire you. <laughs> like every run I did with the Hocus Vigo Evos, I was like, I'm putting miles on these. I'm using my soup cans. Yeah. Like what if I'm going to be like, you know, in a starving state at some point. Yeah. And it's so nice to just like have the freedom with miles and shoes again. So you look great in them. The problem is they're very expensive, but they do last a lot longer, I think, than road super shoes. So I now have about 300 miles on my pair. I use them for the 50 miler that I did. They seem like they respond pretty well. They're a little softer. They're also quite heavy. Um, Actually, when I first put them on, I was like, fuck these shoes because they're so bottom heavy. I was like, how can I run in these? They break in a lot. They break in a lot. It's interesting. Like Most shoes, I always say that you should feel good right when you step in them at the store. I actually think the Ultra 5 is one shoe that does break in more than others. And I don't know why that is exactly. Maybe the foot sinks a little bit lower in the foam. I also don't think I feel good jogging in them. And so it's great because when you put them on, you're kind of like, I'm obligated to run fast (laughs) because otherwise they're going to feel like a bottom heavy piece of shit. But when you're running fast, they feel great. And exciting things. I don't know if we're allowed to say this, but we saw the Ultrafly 2 from Nike. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I am allowed to say it because it's not – I saw it like covertly. I was like being a spy with a spy glass. <laughs> and they look so interesting. So the update of the shoe is going to be a lot lighter. It doesn't have the foam or the um, cloth encasing, which is going to drop probably an ounce per shoe. Um, and they look so much more like the Vaporfly, the road shoe. It looks like the cousin of the Vaporfly, whereas the Ultrafly looks like the fourth cousin with a little bit of inbreeding going on. <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah. not quite there. So it's very exciting. It's because, you know, we've always talked about super shoes are going to reach, make the game, but the trail ones aren't there yet. Like the Ultrafly doesn't feel like a super shoe. It feels more like just kind of like a soft, good trail shoe that is pretty reliable. Okay. But that's what I love about it. It's like when you find a perfect lover and they're like, we're going to chop off his legs or you're going to saw off a knee with a butter knife. Yeah. And I'm like, but wait a second. It was perfection. And <laughs> I feel like that always happens with like shoe models is they just change them drastically. And so when you said the Vaporfly or the Ultrafly 2 looked fundamentally different, I panicked. I was like, wait a second, we can't change it. It's beauty. Well, it'll be a good thing. I think the, ultra, think so? the current Ultra Pie is more of like a training style shoe, which is great. But what we need is the pure trail super, super shoe that is like rockets, just like the road ones. And I think Ultra Fly 2 will be that shoe. Um, final little reflection I had is dinner the night before the race. And it's a good reminder to everyone when you're getting ready for a long run or doing a race or whatever. Megan had been in California for a few days. She knew the restaurant scene around there. She recommended this funky Asian fusion health place. Uh, it wasn't a health place. They served massive things of noodles, which I was excited for. I you saw it, vegetables on yeah. the menu and you're like, fuck that. I saw chard in one of the things. I'm like, <laughs> nope, not for me. You have chard on your menu and David is out. Okay, you do eat vegetables though. I do eat vegetables. When I'm gone, you make the man dinner, which yeah. is kind of like your bachelor dinner. It is a pile of vegetables. That's true. I, I'm not saying I don't like vegetables. I'm just saying that if you're going out to a restaurant, I don't need them to make vegetables for me. (laughs) I need them to give me butter at quantities I never could myself because there aren't that many uh, sticks I can buy in stores. But I made her go to a pizza place and we got literally the best pizza we've ever had. It was also like four inches of toppings on top. Which was sausage and pepperoni in our case. It was called extreme pizza. Yeah. And do you know what I appreciate? They really leaned into their core values. Like they put it in the name of their pizza. (laughs) They put it all over the place. It was very clear when you were walking in there what you were expecting. But you know what? I didn't even expect that. Yeah. It was a massive amount of meat on pizza. And while we were there on the TVs, you know, usually they have sports games. They had a murder documentary about this uh, dog, hus- I think I'm not even sure what their exact relationship was. Oh, it was it was creepy. It was it called was it cracked or snapped? <laughs> snapped. It was snapped. <laughs> snapped. A show called Snap. So we're eating this pizza that's four inches thick while watching murder documentary, and it was like 
you're ready to race now. Oh, it was like we were eating human quad tendon. It's <laughs> like this is from the documentary. But <laughs> that's a, why it's so thick. As a reminder, part of food doping is the night before. Like that's a really good opportunity to build up. You can like when you do a long run or a race, this isn't every night, let's just say. Like, you, you know, obviously we're not saying that this type of pizza should be the absolute staple of your nutrition every day. But if you're gonna race, if you're gonna do something like that. I love a pre-race burger. I love a pre-race, like super greasy pizza. Like that type of thing will give you the energy you need to crush the race the next day and beat all the men too. Oh, it was so fun. But actually final reflection is I feel like for race, for me, like objectively on paper, this race was kind of a stepping stone of a day. Like it was my first race back. I wanted to get my feet wet in racing. In fact, I was actually debating doing big Alta 28K the next day. And as I was in the middle of the race at mile eight, I was like, you know, I really affirm my decisions to race a half (laughs) marathon and not a 28K because I quite frankly, don't think I would have been ready. Like this race was a stepping stone, but it was awesome to have you there. And it just felt like even though it was a stepping stone, yeah. it was a celebration. And I hope for athletes out there that when you do a race, even if it's a backyard race or just kind of like a training tempo type of type of race, make it a celebration. Yeah. Eat the pizza. It was so fun. Racing is so hard. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. In any Actually, context. I feel like you should make all life decisions when racing. Actually, I finished and I was like, 100K? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I'm so excited about it. Well, you, you know, you have time, nine weeks from the race day um, and it's training time. But actually, I think that's a good reflection before we get to some of the serious science topics this week. Is it okay if I ask you about comparison? Yes. Okay. We, we didn't talk about this, but we had done this course before. Multiple, multiple times. times. Yeah. I had run very fast on yes. this course, and I was aware of that. Some of your splits from this course are so insane. Like from prior years, not from this year. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. So, literally, you know, looking back at them, they were best in the world splits. Like, Right now, Grayson Murphy could get those splits and almost nobody else on the planet could. Um, so you lined up into this race knowing that essentially you were racing a ghost Grayson Murphy who was yourself. <laughs> and that like that's really a mindfuck, I think, while you're also training now for this really big race, you're coming back. And I mean, you did great, but at the same time, the ghost you was so insane. So how does that make you feel looking back? And thinking about, you know, what's coming in nine weeks. I mean, it's hard to some extent, but actually I feel totally fine with it. I yeah. remember we were driving home and we were talking about the race and I said something that made you laugh really hard. Yeah. You're asking me kind of like my summary of how I felt about this. And I think I said something along, along the lines of, you know, I might be slightly slower right now, but I am wildly happier. <laughs> and I feel like it's true. Like I think I to do that sort of thing back then, I had a mentality that might not have been, I just, I mean, it was an all in like Michael Jordan type of mentality. You were a killer. You should have been unsnapped. I know, right? (laughs) Eating human quad tendons. (laughs) Anyone who lined up at that race next to you was about to be murdered. I remember so distinctly, it's a little bit like this now, but not so much. Back then we would go to these local races, you know, um, and everybody else would be super chill. You would be at the start line and literally anyone with a ponytail, man or woman, you would give this stare down and then do a stride in front of while just looking at them. <laughs> the stride would be at like four minute per mile pace. And I'm like, oh no, they don't know. They're about to die. Actually, the ponytail is so confusing. So at one point there was a guy that passed me on the climb and then I passed him back on the descent Yeah, and he had a ponytail and it was very confusing because I could see his ponytail like coming up to catch me and then yeah. passing me. And I was like, I think that's a guy. I think that's the guy. But ponytails sometimes are quite deceptive. Yeah. So you're much happier now? Much happier. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think I'll get back to the point, like my training 
I, I actually had the reflection too. I was like, oh my gosh, I had just taken a full reset for my heart and yeah. I'm still building back and I've actually built back faster than I expect. But you know, a race like this and I see how far I have to go and it makes me excited. I'm excited. I think I'll get there. Maybe yeah. I won't get 100% of the way there, but if I get 99% of the way there and am a happier, more fulfilled version of myself, I'm pumped. Don't stop believing. <laughs> no, exactly. Hold on to the feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's... And by the way, this is... What time is it? It is currently 6.02 or and I'm going for the journey. High five. Already singing. I'm so proud of you. Is it the matcha? Uh, Yeah, we did. A a podcast listener got us extra matcha, which we had run out of. And I think we're bringing some of that energy to this episode. Oh, I feel it. It's good stuff. It hits hard. I had it this morning at like 5.05. I was like, I'm ready to go. Um, Okay. And then the final thing is we got to see the big Ulta races. It was insanely cool. Dylan Bowman and Free Trail did a wonderful job. Daybreak Racing, the um, broadcast on Mountain Outpost. It was so cool. As always, go to the Free Trail podcast and click follow on there. Um, give them support. They're doing great things for the community. And seeing that work in action in the community aspect, um, you know, because right after Megan's race, we went to the 50K. And the next day we went to the 28K. It was just so cool. And it was so inspiring to get to meet so many of you, so many of the listeners. So coolest race, it's going to be an instant classic in the trail running calendar. Well, actually, one of my reflections from this weekend is it's hard to put on a race. Like thinking about all the logistics, I don't know why my brain was tuning into that more this weekend is just how hard it is, whether it's like, you know, a race like I did, like Montara Half or Big Alta, like the amount of work that goes into that is a lot. I think it's especially hard to do a race you're registered for because you are so bad at following courses. I know. (laughs) I summited twice uh, in the the race that I did. I like made a wrong turn, (laughs) hit a summit, came back down, went to the the right summit. So yeah. added a little bit of time. Every time before the race, I'm like, hey, Megan, let's look at this map, you know, especially if you might be at the front. <laughs> so we know. And Megan's just like, no, no, I'm not going to look at that map. They make maps are slightly more. I just, my brain does not work with maps. Okay, okay. My brain works with a lot of things. It does not work with maps. <laughs> Smartest person I've ever met. It's like, <laughs> I can't look at this map for three seconds and learn just a turn or two. Okay. But back to Big Alta is Dylan's, the way that they put that on Dylan and Harmony and Free Trail, it was like really captured the ethos of trail running. Like I felt like Dylan as an announcer at the race, it made every single person coming through that finish line feel like they were finishing first place in a way that like standing there at the finish line and seeing people come through, I got goosebumps. It was amazing. Like from the first person, we stayed there for many hours on through people that were coming in many hours later, everyone was so loved crossing that finish line. And it gave me so much respect for Dylan and Harmony, which I already had, but it's yeah. like, it just built on that. And it was such a fun experience to get to see it live. You might be just a few steps behind Ghost Megan from 2015, <laughs> but you know where you were in front of her? Screaming for people. <laughs> yeah. We get so much joy out of being on the course and just yelling at people. And then the coolest part is sometimes they'll get like five steps by and then they'll be like, David and Megan, huzzah. <laughs> um, and it's just so fun to see people fly out there. And Actually, final reflection before we get to the training stuff that you had out there is we saw that the Way Too Cool 50K, which is coming up, is offering some discounted entries this year in early March. And it's so in contrast to when Ghost Megan was racing in 2015, when that race would sell out like five months in advance, it would do a lottery system to get in. And we were reflecting on why, because Way Too Cool is one of the coolest, ra- coolest, <laughs> um, one of the best races in the entire world. I mean, it's stunning. The course is fast. It's, it's fun. It has like everything. It's just, I mean, it's one of my all-time favorite ultras. Ghost Megan has a course record there that will never be touched. If you ever want to see what like, you know. Oh, the- Grayson Murphy for sure would get it. 
<laughs> Grayson's doing shorter distances. Yeah, so. yeah, Grayson could do it as a long run and get it. <laughs> <laughs> Grayson listens, so she'll she'll like. That. I know she'll go do it. It'll be I, great. No, I mean, I would say that you and Ghost Ghost Megan and Grayson would be a great competition, like just because you're both killers in a good way. Um, but you know that race is still not full, and we, you're reflecting on why. And you made a comment about it doesn't have UTMB points. And it I is think, actually, I don't think it does. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to think about how the UTMB umbrella, even though I think at this point we're like, this is going forward as it is, it's the new normal. It has shifted a little bit the context of racing. And it's our reminder, do your local races. Like it doesn't need to be leading to some bigger, you know, thing for it to count. It doesn't have to be, have publicity. It can be the Montero mountain trail half marathon. These things are amazing training days, amazing opportunities to get out there and experience all of the joy of racing, but in a low stakes setting. So do your local races, no matter where you live. In fact, sometimes when I coach athletes and they're having a crisis of confidence or even a crisis of like, why am I doing this sport? Like, where is my love for the sport? It's like, go do a local race because there's something about it. And there's something about being there and just being there for the hell of it and running a fast time and like being out on a fun course that restores that can like help restore faith in like trail running humanity. And so that's why I tell athletes having crises of confidence or crisis of why is yeah. go try these races. They're so much fun. And it's fun to do a race that like doesn't have an endpoint. Like yeah. you don't need points to do a race. And I don't know, I feel like there've been some of my most uplifting moments in sport. What other places can you shoulder check a friend? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Megan they're throw. not even friends, they're strangers. <laughs> but they're friends after you shoulder check them. Yeah, I was gonna say, what's worse, shoulder tracking a friend or shoulder tracking a stranger? Can you imagine what's gonna happen when Leo is able to race? He's gonna be running by and just be like, can I stick my finger up your nose? <laughs> yeah. right, let's get on to training topics. Uh, what we want to talk about this week is the big overarching training topic. It'll be pretty quick, but is double threshold workouts, particularly via the uphill treadmill. So one of the things that we've seen throughout the course of this early season is swap athletes that have been rocking it at the top international web- level, whether it's Nick Handel at the Big Alta 28K, Tara Fraga um, at Trans Grand Canaria where she won, um, all of the athletes at Black Canyon 100K, like double th- uh, tr- threshold via the uphill treadmill ended up being an implicit part of their training, even if it wasn't necessarily structured. So we wanted to mention this as an opportunity to think about leveling up your training. I also think it's curious that we're talking about this now because these are all early season races. And we've had actually, like if we look back, this is not something I typically do, but I can do it through our athletes. Is yeah. I feel like over the last couple of months, we've had a lot of coaching success in early season races with athletes. Yes. And I wonder if there's almost like the early season component of that is something that is relevant here because I think often in early season athletes are training, many athletes are training in winter or in places yeah. where trails are less accessible. And I wonder if double threshold workouts via the treadmill are actually more important in early season and like wintry it. conditions than in other times. Yeah. Well, I think winter really distills training theory down to its essence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In a way that sometimes when you're in summer, when you're able to get out on trails, as we talked about before, the wild part about um, threshold training for trail runners is that you can go out on your trail run and get an implicit threshold workout without structuring it. Mm-hmm. So when we go to Walker Ranch, it ends up being two by 20 slash 10, you know, at moderate effort. Which I'm very aware of. Because of the long climbs. Yes, yeah. And when you're not able to do that, it kind of, you know, folds away. And in fact, this is an element that might be so important to some of our athletes that this is a line from the article that's coming out today in Run Magazine. It's no longer called Trail Runner. I know. I was so confused. I'm like, who is this Run Magazine? Yeah. I didn't even know when you write for them. And they like rebranded with logo and Trail stuff. Trail Runner was folded with women's running, with outside running and all that. Do you think it's a smart move? I think it's a smart move. I think, yeah, I think consolidation of the brands is probably a good thing as it relates to like ad sales. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think ad sales in general are a bad move and you're looking for subscriptions. And, you know, I think 
the hard part about subscriptions is people don't subscribe for an umbrella anything. They subscribe for individual writers they want to read. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where the power of the writer comes in, but it's also where the branding barely matters. What matters is Alex Hutchinson writing or whoever else people want to read. So, um, you know, a little bit complicated, but hopefully, hopefully my article, hopefully I can write enough clickbait that (laughs) people want to read it. Okay. You do not write clickbait. You write stuff that's hilarious and science driven and fun as does Alex Hutchinson. I feel like I would subscribe to run just for the two of you. Yeah. I feel like I know it's like a duel. Me versus Alex Hutchinson. You have very different fighting styles. If we put you in a boxing ring, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Alex Hutchinson would be like going in for the swing and you'd be like, let's go for the hug. He's so kind. Yeah. I think no, I mean like science, scientific swing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Huh. Yeah. I, I love his articles. What he does a lot more is like talks to the researchers and things like that. And often I'm like, no, nope, I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> Too introverted to talk to that researcher. I'll just cite six other studies and see if I can reach some conclusion. Actually, that is where your law background comes in quite handy is your ability to like churn out research and find background evidence is impressive. And I feel like it's a relic of your law days. Oh, my lawyers out there know once you've used LexisNexis, you can do it all. Once <laughs> Westlaw is in your vocabulary, researching exercise physiology is such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Just search the citation so easily. But here's a quote from that article. Megan actually hesitated before giving me the green light for this, concerned that it may give away what we consider an advantage. I responded that 5% of people read this far down, and most of them already know we are into uphill treadmill workouts. So she relented. Marriage is about compromise. And I think Megan has learned that compromise is about knowing when to give up. (laughs) (laughs) I was legitimately concerned about this because, I mean, I do feel like it's a large part of the data point that we've seen recently of our athletes doing quite well in early season races. And I was like, but what if you give this away to the masses? We're giving away our advantage, which typically is not for me. Usually I'm like, let's spread the love. Let's spread the science. Let's spread the knowledge. But it shows how much I believe in this that I'm like, this is the one secret power to what we've been doing. Again, my article is 3000 words. No one is reading that far except the true freaks. And the true freaks already know because they're listening to the podcast. Um, So the example that we wanted to highlight particularly is Nick Handel. So if you were following the big Alta races, you might not know that Nick Handel is one of the best athletes in the world, but he won the 28K by a few minutes. All of that was earned on the final climb. And uphill treadmill has been a huge part of his training structure. He does a substantial number of these double workouts, but they're done in a semi-structured way. Um, so the big theory behind double workouts in general is that you're able to stack a little bit more stress, but without the injury risk to really improve your lactate shuttling and your improvement in your ability in races because of the big time endurance stress. We've talked about the Norwegian training um, science before, so we're not going to get into that in detail. The point just being, this is a way to stack stress so that most of your week can be easy. And then the days that aren't easy can be real stressful. And it's really exploding because of the Norwegian model in the roads and on the tracks. Yes. And I feel like the Norwegians are doing something where they're stacking like flat ground workouts in the AM, in the PM, but it carries a lot of injury risk. Yeah. Honestly, carries even some hormonal risk. But there's not a lot of research done on this for female athletes. And the anecdotal evidence of double threshold workouts is less. There's actually, it's building in yeah. female athletes, but it is less. I don't know. I would say that the jury's still out whether it works for female athletes at all, because the ones that it has worked for are already the best in the world. For men, we have pretty good evidence that this type of approach can work in in most contexts for athletes that meet the requirements we're going to get to. What percentage of female athletes do you think you give this to? So what percentage of female athletes do you add like PM threshold elliptical work or treadmill workouts on for? Or cross training or whatever. Yeah. Um, are we, uh, if we only talk about professionals. Yes, only professionals. Yeah. I would say 25%. Okay. I think mine's probably a little higher, like 30 or 40%. And then for you know, non-professionals, maybe 
five percent. Yeah. Um. So it's it's not a huge number for women. Much higher for men. Um. And it's just because at the end of the day, the little things are the big things: the consistent aerobic development, speed development. And staying healthy. And this type of thing is grasping at the margins, but the margins matter. Actually, yeah, our sport, it's so cool. Our sport is progressing and evolving to the point where like 1% or 2% gains, where typically like athletes would run away with races. Now the competition is so deep that those actually really matter. Yeah. And so how does this work exactly? Essentially, it's super simple. In the PM, after an AM workout of some type, you either do an uphill treadmill progression where you're running at 15%, you turn up the pace a little bit as you go to where you're going moderate. This is a place that heart rate monitoring is actually really helpful to make sure you don't go too hard. You don't want to go up into zone five. We're talking Z3 into low Z4. Um, so pretty controlled. Um, or you can do uphill treadmill light intervals. This is for athletes that really can't sustain those steep grades. This would be more um, less advanced athletes or aging athletes where you're doing something like 10 by one minute moderate. Um, and then one minute easy recovery, or you can do cross training workouts, things like the elliptical or bike where you're doing 10 to 20 minutes of threshold style intervals. Essentially, you're just saying the workout day is my stress day. I'm going to do a workout in the morning and then the evening, I'm also going to do a very controlled session. Um, uphill treadmills are favorite because it's really no stress on the body. It's no impact. Um, and you can do it like day after day after day without huge concerns. And listening to this, if you haven't tried it, it might sound daunting. Yeah. But the wonderful part about the uphill treadmill, and I love that you kind of highlighted this in the article, is that the treadmill is almost doing the work for you. Yeah. Like because of the grade, the paces inherently have to be slower. And oftentimes with athletes that are just getting into this, I emphasize just how easy paces are yeah. because athletes that like run fast on the treadmill all of a sudden when they crank it up to 15%, they're expecting like six or seven miles per hour. And it's yeah. like, no, 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 no that's not no, how no, it no. works. Like start at that four would miles be, per hour. That would be an all out interval for a professional male athlete. Yeah. So, um, you know, at 15%, first 10 minutes, so easy. It can be three and a half to four miles an hour. Then the next 10 minutes, crank it up a little. And then the next 10 minutes, crank it up even more, get a feel for your zones and you can just layer that in. And that can be as simple as it gets. Um, but there's a three requirements before you try this type of thing. The first is you need a large aerobic base. If you don't have a large aerobic base, any type of interval, any type of effort you do is going to raise your lactate levels a ton. It's just much better to keep it purely aerobic and work on that mitochondrial development, which is key for lactate shuttling. And then I think point number two is kind of relates to this is you already have to have a, like a pretty developed running economy Yes, because otherwise like you're going to be like your power and your ability to get up the treadmill is going to be limited. And so what you're training this isn't necessarily like running power or speed or running economy. You're just kind of training slogging up the treadmill. Yeah. And so ideally we do this for athletes whose running economy is already like maximized at their level. And they're kind of looking to get the next level of like power and aerobic gains. Or at least they've already worked on speed for a long time. Yeah. You don't have to be advanced in terms of finishing in the top half even of races. You just need to have done speed. Um, and that gets back to a point about Norwegian training generally. So when we talk about this framework, often people are like, it's all about the double threshold and all that. But that's not what Norwegian training is. What Norwegian training really is, is they do a massive amount of their volume very easy. So zone one in a three zone model, zone one and two in a five zone model, that's like 90% of their training early in their cycles and early in their development. Later on, they'll add a lot more threshold. 
Um, but also Norwegian training without speed is not Norwegian training because every single week they're doing things like 20 by 220 meter hills. Which if, hard. You, which if you think about the lactate progression on that, you're hitting pretty high lactate levels. Hit, yeah. The yeah. numbers that they give in some of the research is eight millimoles. So which is high. pure zone five. That's uncomfortable. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. So they're not just doing this type of work. They're, they're doing a lot of speed. That's why hill strides and things like that are way more important than this type of intervention. This is like the final thing. And then the third point is you need to be strong and healthy, especially in the endocrine system. And uh, it gets back to, you know, Norwegian training and some of the things that aren't talked about there. They are basically professional eaters. Um, They're talking about this so much more now about how much they eat. Um, And if you don't do that, this type of training is such a negative. Like any coach that has their athletes do double workouts and knows that they're not eating enough, it's like that coach is basically committing malpractice because it's going to lead to such negative places. There was actually a quote that you included in the article from, it was coach Alexander Boo. Yeah. And I think the quote was something along the lines of, you can't have power without calories. Yes. And I love that. Like you cannot actually have speed development and reach your top level of running economy without having sufficient caloric intake on board. Yeah. And I I loved that Norwegian training, which is like very like data driven. They are also right alongside that. They're like calories. This has to be supported by fueling. You can't have speed without power and you can't have power without calories. Okay. High five. Crush yes. it. That was Teamwork. great. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that gets back to power development. Everything we want to do as an endurance athlete is building your power. Every hill stride is about power. Every easy run about power. Double workouts. It's another way to you know, accessorize your power to glitz it up. Accessorize your power. I yeah. love that. Just bedazzling the fuck out of your power. <laughs> yeah. um, and that, so that's where this comes in. And as you're incorporating this, keep it simple. This isn't meant to be mentally daunting. Essentially, if you're running uphill on the treadmill in the PM once or twice a week, you're going to get these benefits. But I think framing it in the context of double workouts helps people understand how trail runners and, and basically any athlete that wants to support health have these opportunities to do the really advanced principles, but in an approachable way. Because if a 60-year-old athlete did a Norwegian double threshold, where you're doing five by six minutes in the morning, and then 20 by 400 in the afternoon, they'd get fucked. But you know what a 60-year-old could do? They could do a morning uphill treadmill workout, followed by a PM cross-training workout, and they would be using the same principles. So we're trying to democratize the (laughs) double workout principles for everybody else. And I think for me, when I think about this, it's like, for the longest time for me in my athletic career, I had this kind of like lizard brain with the word workout. Like for me, workout was always going all out. And the key principle of Norwegian and like double threshold training is that the workouts have to be smooth. And I think like, if you don't do that, you're actually tapping into dangerous levels. And so I think that if you're, if you're going to take on this philosophy, I think have a heart rate monitor on, understand your response and make sure you're not like grinding yourself to lizard pulp out there because it's just like, that is not going to lead to progression in the end. And this isn't every uphill treadmill. This is only when you're doing like workouts and you're just progressing into zone three to start. So you barely will notice it. That's the cool thing about the uphill treadmill. It does the work for you. And my theory that I haven't really talked about publicly this is not just for trail runners. Oh, I'm a little scared of what's coming. Uh, I keep it at trail runners when mm-hmm. I write about it yeah. because I just am a little bit worried about venturing into the road and track. But Swap has had some success on the road and track recently. And I really think that this principle works because we're talking about the aerobic system, mm-hmm. not the biomechanical system. Like, I, It doesn't matter how fast someone's going on this type of thing. I don't care how fast your tread hill is. I don't think it necessarily even needs to translate to outside directly. Also, it probably doesn't matter because treadmills are calibrated so wildly yeah. different anyways. Yes. It's all about the aerobic system. And for road and track runners, this is a great way to supplement the aerobic system for things like female athletes that might be a little bit more injury prone, or even male athletes that can't necessarily stomach that quantity of intensity as some of the Norwegian 
allegiance. And so to finish it off, here's another quote from the article. Um, I cited a 2023 study that was on lactate-controlled training talking about how these need to be moderate, not hard. And here's the quote. A wonderful 2023 study compiled the physiological rationale of these workouts into one place. Before experimenting with any of these principles, I recommend that you print the study out, you read it, then you shred the document, and you use the scraps to make a paper mache walking boot, <laughs> just in case you go too hard. I love that. And it's I think it really highlights the point that like you can also fuck this up. Like It's yes. so exciting and it's so magical, but it needs to be done carefully. Yes. yes. And okay. with intention. Let's get on to the next topic. And before we do that, you know what you should do? What? You should give the podcast five stars wherever you listen and click follow. Uh, we have a lot of exciting things coming. We thought we were going to be announced this week, probably next week. Um, but it means the world that you listen, if you give us five stars, it just helps us keep this going uh, and click follow while you're there. Also this week, so you traveled on Friday uh-huh. to come see me in California. This was the day that you had a finger stuck up your nose many, many times. Many times. Yes. A lot of times in that orifice. <laughs> and we recorded a Patreon together on Friday in California at the end of the day, Oh yeah. at the end of your travel day. <laughs> and you know what? It was hard, but it was also so much fun. Like, it was commitment to the cause. It was real commitment. Like we've not, I don't think we've ever missed a Patreon episode except for the day before you raced canyons. Uh-huh. And as we were doing it, I'm like, we're punching it. We're doing it. And it was so fun. Yeah. yeah. Dude, you're lifting up the advertising game for our Patreon. I know. That is not my jam. I am not no, a good advertiser. You hate it. <laughs> you know? But we were absolutely delirious. It's a great episode on the Patreon episodes. We just answer listener questions the whole time. Uh, they're a different vibe, but very fun. Um, also do science posts. Last week, we wrote on post-exercise ketones and gave guidelines for how athletes should do that. So patreon.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. Such a cool community there. Uh, we got to meet so many people that are you know, Patreon members at both races this weekend. All gave little inside jokes. Uh, you have like almost 100 bonus episodes right now to listen to, all 30 minutes long question and answer, and they're getting progressively longer for some reason. Yeah. Do you know why I think it was so much fun? Why? Because we were in the Redwood twe- Trees. <laughs> I did it again. I know. We opened the podcast by saying we were in the Redwood Trees. Yeah. And for whatever reason, when you say Redwood and then tree, it just rolls into a tweet. A redwood twee. <laughs> I know. So as always, if you're out there. <laughs> it was totally unintentional and I did it again. Yeah. If you listen to our Patreon episode, you'll get that joke. Yeah. Well, you know, tree hugging is one thing, right? What I want is some twee fucking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's get to the climbing policy on eating disorders. This was sent in by a number of listeners. It's really fascinating. Um, so basically what it involves is the International Federation for Sport Climbers has instituted this policy where they're monitoring athletes for risky behavior or risky um, physiological outcomes, and then possibly even withholding them from competition based on that information. And very interesting as it relates to like NCAA um, performance and things like that, where you've had these incentive structures that can get quite perverse at some levels. And so a lot of coaches are catching up and a lot of physiologists are catching up, but then you still have stories like the University of Oregon last year or two years ago where they were doing the types of monitoring on their athletes without the follow-up that Mm -hmm. led down really negative paths for a lot of people. And there's starting to be a lot more research out there about eating disorders, disordered eating in sport. And then it's we're going to the next level in terms of how do we implement policy to help athletes cope with this, to help athletes recover, and to make sure that we're competing with like the healthiest athletes possible. And climbing historically has really struggled with eating disorders disorders and disordered eating. It's actually really sad. And 
we actually at Stanford, so a big part of my like PhD research- yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Was doing something called the Healthy Runner Project where we were implementing different standards and different monitoring to help make sure that athletes that were competing were the healthiest versions of themselves and you know providing guidance, providing recovery tools, if not. And there's been a lot more like evidence-based research as to like, how do we implement these policies? Do they work? How do we provide education? And it's amazing to see the Climbing Federation kind of taking this on. Yeah, I'd love to hear as we go through this discussion where the offsets are and where it's relevant. So here's a quote from the president of the IFSC, the International Federation of Sport Climbers. The new system underscores our commitment to the health of our athletes. The policy will not only help us determine which athletes are most at risk, it will also help raise awareness of the issue, provide help for those who need it, and ensure the rights of each athlete are protected. I love that they provided this at the outset because I think the challenge of any system that you incorporate is inherently it's going to be imperfect to fit the needs of all the athletes. Definitely. But I think it's almost, especially in the case of this, it's almost less about the like parameters of the system itself, that that matters to create trust and to create like to actually help work with the athletes. It's about the trickle down education and the culture that follows. Yes. So for us in the Healthy Runner Project, it was, it was more about impacting team culture, like bringing awareness to coaches, bringing awareness to younger athletes coming in than it even was about, okay, like what are the specific guidelines of the system or how are we working with these athletes? It was about like the culture changes. You can't have speed without power and you can't have power without calories. That's the running framework. In climbing, I bet you could say you can't have power without calories and just leave it there. Um, and it's such an important thing to really internalize because it's so it, it's very weird um, being in this community, having seen everything and know the research. And sometimes like you can even see someone running and you're just like, oh, and it's, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover, but after you've been in a while, like we have to have these open conversations so that we don't have to be judging books by their cover. We can just say, look, these are some objective facts you need to know. And then we can institute so that your power is supported long-term and you're not looking at being, you know, a 40 year old that's unable to compete. And you're able to be a grown ass athlete, a grown ass man or woman or non-binary athlete ready to fucking crush when you're 28. Well, I think there's an important distinction though, between climbing and between endurance running that's a good point. is yeah. the fact that I feel like Climbing, actually, you can often sustain low energy availability or eating disorders for a longer tail in competition. Like they will always catch up to the body. Like yeah. you can't, you can't like outrun it. But in climb or but in running, I feel like because of the nature of the pounding on the body and how the body adapts to large volumes and levels of training, often that like progression, that period of time within low energy availability before the body, quite frankly, gets fucked in terms of like menstrual cycle, bone health, all of the different long-term consequences, I think is often shorter. And so I love that they're impacting this or they're like imparting this in climbing because like truly we need earlier intervention if that tail can be longer before like performance truly drops off. Yeah. It's interesting to think about because if it's not a performance framework and more thinking about like power, mm -hmm. my guess is that in climbing, the power reductions end up catching up to them before even the bone health does. Like, exactly. But I their feel performance like starts to really suffer in ways that like, you know, you're just not strong enough anymore. Oh, exactly. But I feel like in terms of the duration of time, sure, yeah. like I feel like it probably takes a longer duration of time before that happens compared to like in running performance where it probably happens within like a year or two. Awesome. So is it okay if I go through the four different um, criteria that they're using in this test? Yeah. Well, I think first before we do that though, so this is what they're doing this on athletes that are applying for their international license. And so it's on a smaller group of athletes. And yeah. as I was reading this, it was like my brain was going to like oftentimes at Stanford within our 
our Healthy Runner Project, athletes that were coming into the program could have benefited from this years before. Yeah. And so it's like, how do these policies that are impacting the very, very top level of sport, how can we help them trickle down? So these policies are for athletes obtaining their international license. And that's one reason I thought it was so important to talk about is so many of our podcast listeners are interacting with young athletes, interacting with other athletes. If this becomes a cultural way of thinking about things that we can then inform healthcare practitioners, PTs, um, coaches, everyone, uh, you'll be in such a better place. So here are the four criteria. First is a red S questionnaire, um, a reds questionnaire. And then you, you wrote a couple acronyms there. I am not aware of actually, so I should probably stop my mansplaining. Oh yeah. For researchers out there, there's two common questionnaires called the leaf Q and the EDEQ. Yeah. And they look at different like, um, eating behaviors, eating patterns, then also some of the long-term like sequelae of these patterns, like menstrual cycle, like bone health related things. And there's like validated scoring systems for both, which is amazing. Awesome. And number two is BMI risk levels. It's not a strict BMI quantification system that then determines your outcomes. It just gives you probably red, yellow, green, or yellow, green based on where exactly the levels are. Number three, interestingly, is a low heart rate under 40 if you're 18 years and older, um, or yeah, under 50 if you're 18 years and old, 18 years or younger, then under 40 if you're over 18 years old. Um, and then finally, is low blood pressure, interestingly. So um, they're essentially saying if you have low heart rate and then low blood pressure, under 90 over 60 specifically with orthostatic changes so like yes. as you stand up oh, so yeah. yeah so it's it's interesting how like blood pressure dynamics work in athletes that have low energy availability yeah so they're combining all of this to create this um flow chart it's a really interesting flow chart if you go to the um the policy. And it's all data-driven too. So this flowchart all comes from, or like the parameters that feed this flowchart all come from like updated research on REDS and consensus statements. And so what I love is this is all like evidence-backed as to how they're doing it. Yeah. So my final little question on this, I love the policy, but how valuable are questionnaires? Because can't athletes just lie and manipulate the answers? Well, actually, I love that you brought that up because I don't know if you saw this, but in I was like diving into the weeds of all of this. Yeah. The way that the information is first gathered is by athlete self-report. Okay. So they're self-reporting their BMI, they're self-reporting like these questionnaires, and there is very little incentive structure to be honest on these questionnaires. However, they do have like a random check policy. Okay. And that scares me a little bit because I feel like it almost creates this like anxiety structure in athletes of uh -huh. like, oh my God, am I gonna like be checked before competition? But I feel like you almost couldn't have like self-report alone for that exact reason. Trust, but verify. So yes, in the legal yeah. system, yeah. they had all the, one of the ways actually to cause change. And I imagine what this is really trying to do is cause cultural change. Exactly. Yeah. Is to change the, um, is to do reporting requirements. So in polluters, one of the number one ways to regulate is not to say, Hey, do this is to say, Hey, report what you're doing. Um, and yeah, we'll check it periodically, but that alone is enough to really reduce, um, mm -hmm. emissions levels. And so, I can see why that's valuable. Um, I just worry that sometimes eating disorders in particular um, can take on a life of their own and have a little voice. You know, so like often the athletes that I work with that really understand this issue call it the voice or something like that, like an externalized thing that tells them ways to behave. It might almost manipulate them into manipulating others mm -hmm. and manipulating situations in ways that they never would do if they actually had the choice. And so I, I do worry a little bit about that volitional aspect. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, I think questionnaires identify people that are almost asking for help and yeah. willing to receive help to some extent. And I think that's a valuable thing by itself, but there needs to be more. And that's where I think like the education trickle down matters. But actually, I do want to go back to those points. So yeah. the points that you listed in terms of like BMI, in terms of heart rate, in terms of blood pressure, those are, it's not 
all of those, it's any one of those oh, yeah. flags you as an athlete of concern. And then you get popped down into the next tier where they go in and they want to evaluate more things related to health. So they have things like DEXA scans, testosterone okay. levels, free T3, which is a biomarker that looks at energy availability. And they use that to do a more holistic understanding of the athlete. And I love that because I think one, it's a framework that athletes, if if athletes themselves think they're struggling with reds, can bring this to a physician and say like, hey, maybe we should do a deeper dive investigation. But it also is expensive to do these tests. And that was like a big thing that we saw in the Healthy Runner Project is like, it costs a lot of money to do blood biomarkers and DEXA scans. And I'm pretty sure the like International Climbing Federation is taking on those expenses, which I think is cool. That's really cool. So what are your conclusions having done the Healthy Runner Project? Like, how do you think we can get the culture better? in a more broad way that doesn't just apply to runners that are at Stanford who are the best, you know, already the best at 18 years old or international level climbers. How can we bring this more to the masses? Yeah. And that's, that's the question is, is like, I think the testing starts the conversation, but I don't think the testing itself is actually the catalyst for change. Yeah. Because like also my heart rate's under 40 and I don't have eating issues and it's just always been under 40. So it's not like that's not in one size fits all. Though I do think blood pressure under with orthostatic changes, 90 over 60 is probably a signal. Oh, it's very relevant. Yeah. And a lot of these things are signals and that's why it's like a very comprehensive look at an athlete. Like I'm sure if an athlete just came with a a resting heart rate of 38, they wouldn't just be like, you can't compete. It's a much broader evaluation. But I think, no, I think these biomarkers are truly in like these measurements are just a catalyst for the conversation. And I think a lot of it has to come like I, this is like, this is actually what I did my PhD on is like, how do we have these conversations and how do we provide education? I think a lot of it has to come from mentors in sport and leaders in sport. So if these international athletes can talk about their experience and talk about recovery and talk about the importance of health, that itself will really trickle down to younger athletes. I love that. So if you're out there, trickle down. (laughs) Yeah, right. That sounds so creepy. (laughs) Piss this data all over your communities. No, seriously, but not seriously, (laughs) very unseriously with the trickle down part, but you can inform people about this. It's okay Mm -hmm. to have open conversations about the importance of eating enough. We want runners to be power athletes, just like we want climbers to be power athletes because power is what lets you achieve what you're capable of. And that requires food doping. It requires eating enough always. Um, It requires gross ass pizza sometimes. (laughs) Um, And if you have rules around food or other things, you are not alone. We are here for you. You can reach out to us um, and we've got your back. Like this is a process. This is not, you did something wrong or you messed up. It's you're human and we all have shit that we have to deal with. For a lot of athletes, it's this and the culture can change and it changes one conversation at a time. Okay. Um, on to the next conversation. This is on iron intake. Uh, this is a quick follow-up. This will just be a second. Uh, and this is on a message from a listener. Uh, and this actually relates to something you said offhanded last week. You were just like, iron uh, levels often correspond a little bit with mental health issues you'd seen. I thought it was so courageous to say that. Oh, I mean, I don't think it was courageous because I literally have buckets and buckets of anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence, though. I mean- I know, and I was clear on that. Uh, but there is actually, I mean, it's anecdotal evidence from what I've seen in athletes, but there is a whole body of research on iron and mental health, even yeah. starting from like children and adolescents, that I was, that there's also like, that provides the background from which I'm confident to state anecdotal evidence on. And so I don't know if it was courageous. I was just stating, stating the truth. I don't know. I think you as a scientist, MD, PhD, for those that don't remember- um, you have a different framework than I do, right? I can make whatever joke I want. and then You can of, piss the data. <laughs> I, can, I can dip in and out of science, right? Because I think no one who actually listens to what I have to say doesn't think I, I 
don't get it, right? They, they understand I get it. Um, but I can also just come in, come out, act dumb, act smart, and it's very easy. But for you, making offhanded comments is a little bit more risky. It's one reason I empathize with you so much in the podcast where we're just shooting the shit and you have to talk about it. So. Um, I don't think it doesn't feel risky. I can act dumb, act smart. Okay. Like that's, just, that's just who I am. Sometimes we just throw a little polka in there. <laughs> Your polkas are so good. Okay. So uh, we got a lot of messages from listeners and I wanted to read one in case you're out there and you've never gotten your iron checked. Actually, we got almost like an unprecedented number of messages about this. For just a one sentence comment. That's why I thought it was important to follow up on because if we're getting this, there are people out there who haven't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. So if we can make one difference, um, eating and then this is a good back to back. So here it is. I got so excited when I heard you ask how athletes felt when they went from a ferritin that was really low to really high after an iron infusion. I recently got three infusions to try to rectify my ferritin of six. Gasp. I know. I actually heard about people that had ferritins of one. Can you imagine how terrible that feels? It must feel so bad. It must feel so, so bad. I mean, athletes often feel bad when it's like 25, yeah. let alone one. Or yeah. even 38. Um, it climbed to 250 in about six weeks after the infusion. And afterward, I bawled to my primary care physician who ordered the infusions. I went through life for 10 plus years in a cycle of total self-loathing for always being too tired and never feeling like I deserved to be as tired as I was. I would have epic meltdowns if I didn't run before work in the mornings because I spent 10 years knowing that if it didn't happen before 8 a.m., it would never happen. I thought everyone had as much anxiety about life after work hours, going to the grocery store, small talk in public, etc. And I had a lot of poor personal hygiene habits, never bringing things in from the car, being too tired to take a shower after running, etc. After the infusions, it all evaporated. My therapist and I decided that I probably spent so much energy just focused on getting through my day that I didn't have energy for the normal things in life, which caused me so much anxiety that I've been on medication and on slash off um, different things. I don't want to get into their mental health background. I thought everyone was this tired and I hated people for being able to do things I couldn't do. We had no idea just how much I was struggling until it was fixed. Anyways, it's a thing and I'm much happier now, but I still hate the grocery store. That one might be unfixable. <laughs> oh, I do think it was unfixable. I actually talked about personal hygiene and like not bringing in things from the grocery stores. Like that's also humanity. <laughs> we struggle with that. Last time we went to Trader Joe's and those grocery bags got left in the car for a little bit. I do love the grocery store though. Yeah, I love lingering in the grocery store. I don't love carrying all the goods inside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the grocery, actually, the trick is just yeah. to eat as you're doing it. Okay. Just to have really fun things that you buy at the grocery store and then treat it like an altar. You're just going to snack all the way from the car into the house as you put it away. Trader Joe's mochi rice nuggets. Oh, those things if you have never had so those, good. oh my God. Actually, do you know what might surpass mochi rice nuggets? Nothing. Nothing on earth? The chocolate chip dunkers. Oh, <laughs> they are so good. They come in a pack. It's like you get like 40 cookies for $5 and they're so good. Off-brand Dunkaroos, you're going over my mochi rice nuggets? I had two this morning. Okay. You can't get okay, But actually, this point brings up something interesting that I didn't mention last week is how often I see athletes that have chronic health conditions that it then affects their overall life in ways mm -hmm. they don't realize until they start addressing the chronic health conditions. So good example is athletes that have let's say, you know, a stomach issue or something like that, a long-term issue, and then also have addictive tendencies. Mm -hmm. And um, I read studies about this, that if an athlete, let's say, has something like Crohn's disease, the risk that they are addicted to a substance is 
astronomically higher. In order to cope with the amount of pain and like life challenges and everything they're going through. Maybe that's it. That's yes. probably it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's all these different lines of causation, but that yeah. is one of the hypotheses. Well, I mean, yeah. Perhaps there's some underlying thing that could also be a trigger. We don't know. But just the idea that, look, if you are dealing with something health-wise or even mental health-wise, and it's just all so interconnected that give yourself the love of doing things like getting tested and seeing the doctor and even going to the dentist, yeah, uh, yeah, which yeah. I did last week for the first time in I'm forever. Proud of you! You crushed it. I did. Your first time to the dentist in fifteen years. Yeah, I went before you, and I told everyone in the office, "I was like, he's coming in. He's anxious. He's, he's so nervous. Sexy. He's so <laughs> relaxed." I would just say he's essentially like a young Brad Pitt. That would be what I frame him as. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they were. It was great. <laughs> they like rolled out the red carpet for you, but it was kind of unfair because I was there. My t- my like gums are super inflamed. My teeth yeah. are kind of a mess. And I go to the dentist all the time. You were there for 45 minutes. I was there for 90 plus. The quote, immaculate teeth. That's what the, the <laughs> technician said. And I'm never going to let you live that down. 20 years without a dentist, immaculate teeth, Megan. Are you going to go next year to hear them tell you that you have immaculate teeth? I'm going to go in 2054. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. my next trip. But no, I it think- It did hurt. It did hurt. I got to be honest. But I do think that like if you're struggling with this stuff, like- get lab work done, like advocate for yourself at the doctor's office. Because like, sometimes I feel like from what I've seen in athletes, sometimes these types of behaviors or these types of feelings can just kind of slip into normal. Like oftentimes iron levels don't just drop overnight. It's this like gradual decline, or perhaps they were like even always low. And like, I think it's important just to be aware of that and to advocate for yourself. And it doesn't just have to be iron. You could probably find other biomarkers that might be giving you little nudges in a direction you don't want to go. Testosterone, another amazing one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so just pay attention to that. Um, Okay. Do you want to get on to the effect of exercise on depression? Let's do this. This study, I love, I actually love this study for many reasons. Um, And one, because it supports why I've been polking today. Okay. Why I'm flapping my hands. Yeah. (laughs) This is a weird study, actually. No, this is actually a great study. There are some oddities within the study. Yeah. The study that we're about to talk about has some of the most beautiful data visualizations of all time. So if you're like in the data visualization field or even a scientist, like tune into how they do things and we'll kind of highlight it up ahead. Do you want to fuck this study? I do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I want to fuck a lot of studies. <laughs> yeah. <true>. yeah. <laughs> but this one, is, it's my Brad Pitt. Megan's covered in paper cuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just all over. Okay. So this was in BMJ. Uh, it was entitled, The Effect of Exercise for Depression, a Systematic Review in Network Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control trials. Um, the Overall, it found 218 unique studies with a total of 495 arms. It's like many octopuses um, <laughs> yeah. and 14,170 total participants across all the studies. And in order to identify these studies, they did a lot of mining. So they were going through and they had this like high level of rigor that they needed to identify studies that fit the certain criteria that they had. And so to get to these 14,000 participants, they were doing, they had like a high level of rigor to get there, which yeah. is awesome. And that's why like meta-analyses are amazing is because it gives you this great summary of the field. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was cool is they also understood the p- possible of bias within the studies. Oh, that, so much bias. Yeah, yes. Being in the control group in one of these studies, when you're measuring like physical activity is the ultimate fuck. Yeah, it just says fuck you to the participants in a way. <laughs> so it's really tough to know exactly what's happening because as soon as you measure something in a study like this, you're just by definition changing it. And it's you know, difficult to say, but they really recognized that and took extremely conservative estimates. The least favorable end of the credible interval is the quote. Uh, And then even with that, they can 
expected experience clinically significant effects from a number of these activities. And what I thought, one of the reasons why this bias existed is because it's hard to blind participants. So yeah, like, yeah. in a lot of research studies, <laughs> like participants are blind to like, so say you take a pill. When you're taking that pill, you don't know if you're taking a placebo or you're taking like the actual pill as part of the intervention. But when you're doing exercise-based interventions, you really, it's very hard to blind someone yeah. to be like, okay, you're cycling, JK, you're not. That's, what I've, been, that's yeah. what I've been trying to do at weddings. Right? <laughs> so we're about to talk about dancing. That's what Megan's been teaching up and every time at weddings i've just been like i'm the control study here sitting on my table and megan you were you ruined the study by making me get up onto that dance floor and break my break my booty down to the floor <laughs> it's not good you got it so low yeah, yeah um okay so let's just get straight to the findings um the first uh, is that quote in isolation the most effective exercise modalities were walking or jogging yoga strength training and dancing so in these studies, they were looking at how does exercise impact mental health, specifically for patients and for individuals with depression. Yeah. And they had these whole list of activities. And some studies had like multiple nodes. So in some studies, they were doing like walking and jogging or like mixing it up. So like- And SSRIs were involved too. So they had a, some studies that were just looking at SSRIs, others that were looking at SSRIs and activity. They basically covered the gamut here across all these studies. And SSRIs are serotonin selection reuptake inhibitors. So they're the types of medications that some patients go on to help deal with mental health, like depression and anxiety. Yeah. And it's really interesting on the SSRI research in that sometimes the mechanisms aren't exactly understood, even though nowadays that they, you know, they understand how the drugs work, but they don't necessarily understand exactly how it affects mental health, which is one of the things that was interesting about this study is that SSRIs in isolation only work a little bit, but add some activity on top of it, SSRIs plus activity, and they work a lot more. It was actually really cool. So they have this like figure. And what I love about this study- Oh, the figure's sexy. The, the, figure, the figures are so oh. sexy. As I said, the data visualization in the study is excellent. But you could see the effect size. So the, the amount of effect that each, when you looked across all of these different studies, the amount of effect that each modality was having. And SSRIs were so small. And then when you- but, Granted, we see tons and there's lots of research about it. still there. a lot better than control. Yeah, exactly. It's still, still perhaps a helpful intervention. But when you added ex exercise onto the SSRIs, it really moved the needle. Yeah. And that data visualization is essentially what we want to talk about. Basically, there's a lot of different things. And it reminds me of that quote that exercise has trouble hitting a moving target mm -hmm. or uh, depression has trouble hitting a moving target. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> I was still confused. Yeah. <laughs> um, depression has trouble hitting a moving target. It's not that simple, right? I think the, the hard part here is that once an athlete gets moving, inherently their depression might not be as bad because they had the energy to get moving. Like, you know, depression often makes doing any of these activities so difficult, which underscores one of the primary findings of that figure, which is by far the most effective intervention, granted it's not like a huge statistical finding, but in that figure is dance. Okay. It was wild. So you could like see, you know, kind of the effect sizes building and then dance was like all the way <laughs> over here. Granted, it was on. So most of these studies, it had the least number of participants because it's been studied the fewest times. Yeah. So it had 103 participants, whereas all the other ones were like thousands of participants. And think about the mental health context that needs to be uh, get there for you to get into dance. For you to be even be able to do it. Plus the study that they, the like study population that they looked at was primarily females with a mean age of something like 31. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, you know, try telling a 70 year old male with depression to dance. And they'd yeah. be like, polka? Like, what, what, <laughs> what do we do here? So I think it's very hard. But I think if you do have the ability to dance, it does say something about like 
the lightness and the brain state that you work into when you're able to dance. Like, I just thought that was so cool. Have you ever seen that TikTok of the girl who's doing one of those challenges, like going side to side, like doing something and the whole time she's crying? No, I haven't seen that. I'll show you right after. (laughs) That's what this reminds me of uh, in that, you know, the reason that that goes so viral is seeing someone dancing while crying is such a difficult thing to imagine. And again, chicken or egg, right? It's very hard to dance if you're depressed. In fact, like I, when I notice whenever I find myself singing out loud or, or dancing or whatever, it's a sign I'm happy um, mm-hmm. or at least fulfilled in that moment. Um, it's not something I've ever had the urge to do when um, feeling down. Um, and so I think that that's essentially what the study is seeing for the most part, even for the other things. But you know, the thing I like the most is that walking and jogging, the types of things we talk about are by far the most consistent across the studies at seeing just a general push in that direction. Yoga is also really good. Um, basically, another reason to get into a consistent activity routine. But it's actually curious though, because I feel like a lot of athletes that we coach or we work with are already performing a high level of exercise. And actually I did a study um, with Strava during the COVID pandemic, looking at athletes like physical activity patterns and like also patterns of how they were reporting mental health. And in general, physical activity went up during COVID, but the rates of like depression and anxiety also are like subjective reportings of what might be depression and anxiety also skyrocketed. And I think for for athletes that already have this large foundation of exercising, like exercising more often isn't mm-hmm. going to budge the needle on mental health. And so I do think like, yes, exercise amazing for mental health, but I feel like in athletes that are already doing high amounts of exercise, like how much can it move the needle? And that's where like other interventions come in, like cognitive behavioral therapy and working with a therapist, SSRIs, SSRIs all of these different things, um, because it's just hard to actually move the needle when you're already exercising a ton. Yeah. And I love this study because it does say dance is so great, (laughs) but everything else, I think it's kind of a no shit study, but it's good to have it on paper because as we think about population health, um, it's not just, you know, God, it's definitely not about race results or anything like that. Like all of the things that we're doing in this sport are about adding purpose to your life and hopefully budging yourself a little bit more to self-acceptance and fulfillment. Um, but that's independent of external outcomes because I bet one thing we'd see is, okay, if we had another arm of the study, which is elite athletics Mm -hmm. and then said, you know, like had a results arm and saw that, oh wait, elite athletics can actually start to turn that clock back and make it less mentally healthy Mm -hmm. because you start to judge yourself more and be less self-accepting. The comparison dial starts to turn. Exactly. And so I think we're about trying to harness the little benefits you get from doing the stuff at all without the negative effects of comparing yourself to ghost versions of yourself or other people. It's like any amount of comparison probably will send you back to that control group. And that's not what we want to do. I love that. Well, I feel like there should have been dance and then there should have been like a whole node of the studies, like participants doing like interventions that involved airplane arms. I feel like you have to throw up airplane arms when you're out there running or cycling. I've definitely been crying sometimes or like whatever on a run or just really sad. And then like, okay, airplane (laughs) arms. And they start like kind of flaccid at first. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then as you build up confidence, they're like, you're like, ah, <laughs> maybe I hope. Um, okay. Before we get to news and fun things, maybe a quick protein follow-up. Do you want to do that? Or is it too complicated? It's too complicated. Too complicated. Actually, I was going to tell you, you, you put like one thing in the outline, which was mTOR yeah. and we need, this needs to be a 15 minute discussion. Well, I, can, I can act dumb and smart though. <laughs> no. I can act both dumb and smart. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll skip it. I know. We'll come back to it. Cause I actually think there's a lot of nuance in nutrition conversations. And we've been talking about high protein fueling and why that matters for athletes. But there's also some like trade-offs that happen for health. And I do think it's important to acknowledge those and talk about those. 
but it's a very long discussion. Well, you know what time it is then. What? News and fun things. Oh, yes. Which means only one thing right now. Is it uniform time? It's MLB uniforms. I like this. Are we going to flip? I'm going to talk about the MLB stats and like- <laughs> Oh, like the, I like to do? Yeah, yeah. And then you're going to talk about the uniforms, which actually I don't like to do, but I like it. I think you'll really enjoy this topic because- what happened is uh, the Major League Baseball changed their approach to new uniforms. They did a partnership this year between Nike and Fanatics. Um, this is a broader discussion about capitalism and the free market and things like that because Fanatics is one of the worst companies in all of sports. I didn't realize that. So what they do is they sign exclusive deals with organizations like the NFL. Mm-hmm. No one else can make licensed gear with you know uh, officially. But as a result, there's no competitors. And Mm. people will post these photos that they get of their uniforms. And like the numbers will be weird. The letters will be all off. Wait, the baseball players or the people that buy them? This is people that buy Fanatics gear in general. Like let's say you Mm -hmm. buy a Viking, Minnesota Vikings, um, you know, jersey or something like that. But it's coming to the masses now because they partnered with Nike for these moisture wicking, you know, amazing uniforms, theoretically. One, they're a little bit shoddily done when it comes to like the letters and things that can be expected of fanatics. But what I wanted to tell you is what happened with the pants, which is you can see dong. <laughs> they're see-through. <laughs> that is wild. Because they made them so moisture wicking, <laughs> totally see-through, white pants for all the baseball players right now. Tons and tons of photos of oh, this for online. for the actual pro players? For the professional players. Has the MLB like ratings and viewership skyrocketed? I don't maybe know. Maybe this is a conspiracy theory. We're maybe, talking about it. Maybe it's much like the NFL and Taylor Swift and yeah. Travis Kelsey. Or lifting the typo from last week. Uh-huh. Yes. Trying to draw attention to it. Yeah. Try to draw attention to the dong. I mean, I feel like if you're going to draw attention to it, it's like they got their centerpiece. Yeah. They got their typo. (laughs) Another situation where, dude, if you ever mess up at work, no, at least you're not making see-through pants for people that are paid $20 million a year. Well, I'm really sad. I should have Googled this a whole 24 hours ago. My life would have been a lot better in 24 hours. Okay. I love that point. Let's go to the next one. Uh, This is just a little one. We got new iPhones um, and the GPS on these iPhones so bad. It's so bad. So every once in a while, I will like start my watch and start my phone because sometimes like when you're having a great run and your GPS like dies on your watch or something like that, it's nice to have a backup. But what I was realizing is there was like a mile discrepancy on a 12 mile, 13 mile trail run between the watch and between the phone GPS. And if you want to feel good about yourself, uh, use the Strava iPhone GPS. I actually, I like don't upload it because I'm like, yeah. this is heinous. So the way you know it's off in some cases is that if you actually look at the GPS file, like the track, you can see it going side to side on the road. So it just adds a little bit of distance, but then that adds up. I really like it. Like it has this like twerking on the road uh-huh. as you run. Airplane it's like, arms. Yeah, you're side really side. moving side to side there. Um, and well, two comments on this. First is I want to make a swap watch just like this. Because <laughs> yeah. as we talked about before, the faster your GPS says you are, the faster you get. Well, actually you, for a week, your watch didn't work for like yeah. a week. So you were using your phone GPS and you felt so good about I yourself. I felt so good and I felt so strong and so fast. And then even though I had this knee boop, last week I was able to do a little bit of a fitness test in Z2. And I was running 605 pace at 146 heart rate with my watch. So Megan, over just that period of time, I was getting a fitness bump from my fake GPS. <laughs> so we need a swap watch that does this, but gives you no evidence that hides all the evidence. Because I think in a really serious way that 
if you have this positive reinforcement, you will get faster. So try to be the positive reinforcement for yourself. Try to be the <laughs> fake GPS. Uh, but number two is what changed in the iPhones? Because the old ones that we had were totally fine. Yeah, um, that's true. It's a good question. Because often watches do measure short. Have you actually seen that wiggle room? Like It hasn't been on our past watch, a phone. It was yes, only yeah. on the new phone. Yeah. So um, I don't know, maybe it's a setting on our phone, like a um, something like that. Maybe it has to do with having it in our arms when we carry it. Not exactly sure, but something is changing. I like those changes, but maybe we shouldn't use it. Well, I wonder also too, is it the interface with the phone and the Strava app or is it like the GPS itself? Like I wonder if there was mm. another app, what would happen with that? But I do think actually Garmin's are often like, especially in the Redwoods or like in places where there's like a lot of tree coverage or building coverage, sometimes they are comically short. Watches can measure very short though because they're taking fewer GPS readings. Mm -hmm. and so things like trails often just very, very off. Okay, next up. Fi, the company that makes collars for dogs that track their uh, movement, has teamed up with Strava to do Strava for dogs. How cool is that? <laughs> We've needed this for a long time. Actually, Strava was probably like, we need this because dogs are taking segments out there. Yeah. Addy Dog had a segment at one point on like the US Mountain Running Champs course. And yeah, we dogs definitely need their own special category. Yeah, this is really interesting. I wonder why they're doing it. It's cool. Well, actually, there was a Strava year in report, like, like report that came out that kind of described that like 76% of Strava athletes that when they struggle to get out the door, their dog motivates them. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like dogs are like, there's actually talking about mental health. There's a lot of interesting studies about the like relationship between mental health and owning a dog yeah. and much the same way dogs help people get out the door. But what about dog mental health? <laughs> yeah. Right. What if Fido or whatever gets his data and it's not up to 2015 ghost Fido? I know they're signing up for comparison. Yeah. Okay. But you can only do from what I understood, I was like diving into it. We haven't done it with Addie yet because Eric Cryer is having a collar. And I don't think Addie even has a collar in this house. No, she's too old for a collar. <laughs> yeah. She's like Danny, uh, Danny Glover and Lethal Weapon. She's too old for she, this shit. She doesn't go on a leash. Uh, but you can only walk with your dog. Dog needs other Dogs need other activities and they need Strava segments. Okay. Like Addie needs to be able to go get our backyard segment. Yeah. And if Addie doesn't get the segment, she goes to a farm upstate. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what we're going to do because we're very serious about our Strava segments. Okay, uh, next up is a study on normal shoes that looked at their durability. And I have some questions. This was all, this wasn't like a structured study, I believe. Um, but oh, this is very informal study. Very informal. Yeah, the data visualization on this was not quite like BMJ material. Questionnaire style. Um, but what they found in this study, it was written about in I Run Far, is that users averaged 1,000 to 1,200 kilometers per shoe. And I'm just like, how? I have worn the normal drugs or whatever you want to call them. And I do not feel that way. In fact, now I use them because they feel like they've broken down so much. So I'm like, they'll make me run with good form. <laughs> I'm kind of confused what people's relationships with shoes are. I think it's selection bias. Yeah, it's true. You buy the... So oh. who think about who buys the Keurigs. Like you got sent the Keurigs. We did yes. not buy the Keurigs. And I, I like them. They're, they're, oh, they're amazing shoes. They're great shoes. But I don't minimal. think you're the type of person that would buy those shoes. Uh-huh. Um, so so, for me. so like, like yeah. our reaction to the survey is very different than someone that's like, oh, I want a sustainable pair of shoes. Thus, I'm going to wear them for a thousand kilometers. Well, I do want a sustainable pair of shoes. But, <laughs> yeah. but I also want sustainable drip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want my shoes being brown. I want my shoes being spicy white. Also, I feel like Killian. So Killian is like the founder of... Of normal shoes, I feel like he could win races in sandals. Yeah. So it probably doesn't matter if his shoes are broken down anyways. So it's perfect for him to be the leader. He apparently wore one pair of normal Kurgs from all of his races in 2022. So winning Hard Rock, winning UTMB, all of the training. And I'm just like, 
what is your running form? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I fall going up the stairs and I'm out for two weeks. If I wore the shoes that much, Megan, I would be a cyclist <laughs> yeah. very, very quickly. I know. I like, I don't know. I love comfortable shoes and like shoes that feel like they have pops. So I think we're just in a different subset of the population. But yeah. I did see a video of Killian running uphill on a treadmill. Oh. And I'm like, I don't know. It's very weird to see yeah. like a work of athletic art running uphill on a treadmill. Wait, and you see me running uphill on the treadmill all the time. <laughs> you're you're a, you're a work of athletic. Megan, have you seen Picasso's? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen Jackson Pollock paintings? <laughs> I can be a work of art. It just depends on what you're defining as art. <laughs> okay, uh, next topic. This is a quick one that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to fire through some news and fun things. And this is some podcast advice. So a lot of listeners have emailed over time asking for advice on podcasts and things like that, much like they used to ask about writing. Um, and that's, I think, because slot podcasts, taking up to the top of the charts, un unashamed advertising over here. Um, and I wanted to say, I used to always say quit your job, right? Um, Actually, I know. And so when I left my position at Stanford a couple, yeah. a couple months ago to like, I'm thinking of starting a few new things and have some ideas. The number of like messages I got that was like David finally wore on you. Oh you gave in. I did influence you. I know. How I did actually, I not give you a hard time about that? I refuse to think that I got influenced. Oh. It was just a, a pattern of life. But did you think about that? Oh we never God. talked about it. You know, Megan, have you ever seen like the, one of those things? So th there's a faucet on one side that just drips water. And on the other <laughs> yeah. side, there's no faucet. Yeah. And so on either side, a rock is underneath. And then it'll say like 1930 as the faucet. And so they've been doing this experiment. And the 1930 rock is all worn down. That's you <laughs> as it relates to my advice. You're not the clean rock. You're the rock that just has this massive hole in it where I have influenced you over time through erosion. That has so much shit on it. It's like a pair of shoes that have been worn for a thousand kilometers. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I give in finally. Exactly. But the quit your job advice, you've heard that if you listen to the podcast. The new one is start your podcast. Yeah. Have you, we've, we've actually impacted a lot of people starting new podcasts. Yeah. And so I want to just say like, I think sometimes when people start a podcast, they think that they need to make something great. Or, or it's like, or they're just like, why? Like yeah. there are so many podcasts out there. Like, why do I need to add my own? And I think the reason is exactly that. Like, your uniqueness of your voice is so cool. And it's such a great mental exercise for yourself. Yes. In the yeah. same way that running is without racing. It's like a diary. We're going to go back and listen to these when we're 80. And also it's just yeah. interesting. It's fun. It's creative. It's all those things, but with a low barrier to entry. So if you're out there, start your podcast. You can send us a message and we'll give you advice on like, a software to use and like little things that we learned the hard way. Um, you know, there's a lot of advice out there online. I think most of it's just too much of a barrier to entry. We have figured out the simplest way that costs like a hundred dollars only. Um, and you can put your voice out there into the world. And especially for women and non-binary athletes and underrepresented people, transgender athletes, like the more voices we can get from non just white dudes making jokes about uh, dropping <laughs> low to the floor, probably for the better. Um, but even if you're a white dude, share your voice too. The world <laughs> needs voices of love and compassion and jokes. Um, so start your podcast. I love that one. Yeah. Did you like that one? I think that's a good one. What do you think is more important, quitting your job or starting a podcast? Oh, quitting. Actually, you can do them in tandem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of functionally what I did. It's true. It's yeah. true. No, I have other things I'm working on, but it is, I mean, it is very rewarding. A little and bit like that. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, for us, our podcast started this like 30 minute thing and it's evolved now to take on its whole, a whole new life form. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't make any money from this for two and a half, two years until Athletic Greens. Oh no, less than that. Way less than that. No, Megan, because we didn't- But we had other Athletic sponsors Greens. before Athletic Greens. I guess Whoop was a year and a half. Yeah. It, it was still a year. was a year and a half yeah. or something. And, and even that wasn't huge. The point being that like, 
it's not about money. Don't make it about that. Don't ever think about that. Well, kind of it. And I, I think it can be about that. But I think it's also really helpful at the start and throughout the podcast. Like, listens also don't matter either. No. Yeah. What matters is, well, how, I mean, even, what matters is how it feels to you in terms of like the creative yeah. energy of it. And even for advertisers, listens like one of the best things we ever did was we disconnected our value from the CPM model, which mm-hmm. is the, you know, essentially a cost per thousand listeners or whatever. Um, and we're just like, look, our value is not that. Our value is being authentic to people that know we're giving them our honest truth, even if our truth differs from theirs. Um, and that was really helpful for us. But it just points out too that it's not about listens. It's about shining your light in the world. And, you know, sometimes you got to shine your light in the world via talking into a quite phallic microphone. I'm surprised you said shining your light, not shining your booty (laughs) by dropping it low. (laughs) Okay. One final thing I wanted to talk about news and fun things, which has been on the list forever, but we have to talk about it now. This is about the S2 testing in the National Football League. So the S2 is this intellectual test that replaced what used to be the Wonderlick. So the Wonderlick was just your classic cognition test where it asked a bunch of SAT style questions and really rapid fire. You've probably heard of this. You might've even taken it if you've applied for a job. The Wonderlick has been everywhere. Um, but they were- But it's also been like disproven because I think yes. there's high levels of bias and education bias and like it doesn't account for like the diversity of lived experiences. And so no. I'm really glad they're replacing it. But I feel like almost every test that's coming ahead is also an imperfect system too. Yeah. Well, if the Wonderlick was any good, people from Harvard would be better at football. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and they are not. <laughs> yeah. And then just points out brains work in a lot of different ways and backgrounds make a huge difference on those types of tests. Mm-hmm. So the S2 jumped in. And what the S2 does, it's an intellectual test that looks much more at things like reaction time and recall of visual stimuli. The types of things like if a quarterback is surveying the field and needs to make a decision in two seconds, it's much more direct on that. It's much like a concussion test if anyone has ever taken yes. that. And so like things pop up on the screen and you're like, okay, that's a red circle or that's a green triangle. And it measures how fast of reaction time. It's much like a video game to that extent. Yeah. And often they'll see some correlation between S2 testing and certain NFL traits, not your success as every position, but like, let's say for a quarterback over time, theoretically, there's a little bit of correlation, but these scores are not released publicly. So we're not sure, but NFL teams wouldn't use it unless they knew in some way Mm -hmm. it had some benefit. But the big controversy happened last year after the NFL combine. And I think it points out a little bit about what you're measuring, what you're testing, how much it matters, how much it doesn't comparisons to things like VO2 max. CJ Stroud was coming out of the draft coming from Ohio State, and he scored low on the S2, like very, very low at the quarterback position, which is a huge red flag for some teams. But these are confidential scores. Why did it get released? And a story just came out this past week that was talking about it got released theoretically, not by the S2 company, not by the Houston Texans who ended up drafting him, but by a rival team Mm. that wanted to justify their decision not to take him. So they were negging the shit out of CJ Stroud for getting a bad score on this test just so they could justify their decision to take someone else who sucked. Whereas (laughs) CJ Stroud ended up having one of the best rookie seasons in the history of the NFL. So it points out a few things. One, when you're taking tests, it matters how much you care. So the S2 company, what they've tried to kind of tried to say is that he just wasn't that invested in the test because it's like, this is dumb. Oh yeah. As you're doing it, it's so obvious that how much you care matters for the test. Oh, yeah. As do things like, I'm sure matcha, like matcha powder Definitely. probably increased test scores. Like the number of like little micro interactions in life that inter- interact with this test is kind of wild. It actually reminds me of the concussion test. 
in college, everyone is required to take an entry level test that gives you a baseline so that if you ever have a concussion, you can test again. Yeah. Very similar to the S2 test. And the first time I did it, I recognized, I was like, if I ever have a concussion oh. and I'm a beast on this baseline, <laughs> I'm never going to see the field again. Wait, you threw the test? No, no, no. You I the mean, 1919 White Sox, the no. team that cheated at the World Series? I was the games? like 85% of myself on okay. the test. I just was like sitting back in my chair <laughs> being like, that's a red triangle. That's yeah. a green circle. And and you took your measurements flashed. But you know what? It worked. I got a concussion and I was allowed back on the field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the reason I wanted to mention it, one, I think it's an interesting story about decision making and, and the ways people cut other people down to justify their own behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, two, I think it's an interesting thing about testing and what matters and what doesn't. And so as you're taking your own tests, like CJ Stroud, even if he had cared a lot, probably wouldn't have scored that well in the S2. But in the actual skills that mattered in the NFL, he's maybe one of the very best of all time. I think there's a chance that he's going to be a Hall of Famer. So when you point out that, it's a reminder that what your watch tells you about your VO2 max, like what your LT2 measurement is if you go to a lab, all of those different things. Or even things up. outside of life. Like yeah. think about the parallels, like what your MCAT score tells oh, yeah. you about like what you're going to, how you're going to be a physician down the road. Like maybe there's some relation, there is probably some relationship, but I feel like it starts to fall away um, with like human empathy and so many different things. I love that so much. Okay. Do you want anything else before we get to hot takes and secrets? Let's go to hot takes and secrets. Okay. Let's just do one today uh, because I think this one's kind of interesting. Let's do two. They're both, they're short. Oh, Megan, I think, okay, two. Pie is, in almost all instances, better than cake. Cake is just a vehicle for frosting. Pie is intrinsically tasting. Tasty. Ooh, how do you feel about that one? I'm going to say fa- false. I don't I think cake is better than pie. Okay. I don't know where this listener's coming from. Okay, well, to me, frosting is exponentially better than fruit. And I feel like oh. fruit defines the pie, frosting defines the cake. And frosting, to me, is like 25x fruit. You know what we need. Like, why would you have apples when you can have frosting? So cake is to pizza as pie is to calzone. Mm. We need a pie filled with frosting. That's actually, that's that's so true. Boom. Yeah. Changing the game over here. That would be delicious. What would you call it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh man, Megan, I'm on the spot now. No, I actually have an answer, but it's far too explicit, actually. I'll tell you after the podcast. Wait, are you sure? I'm so sure, Megan. Is it degrading? There's listeners out there that know what I'm going to say. It's not degrading. How do I not know what what you're going to say? I'll tell you after. (laughs) I'm like, I feel like I'm failing the S2 (laughs) test. I'm like, what is it? (laughs) We'll wait on that one. Okay, next one. Hurry monitors should be legally required to include a disclaimer about the mental toll they will incur on their owner. Because if not, it's not if. But when? Ooh. Actually, I've recently I've been running with a, less of a heart rate monitor, and I really enjoy it. Yeah. I'm just soul vibing. I do like it, though. Like Sometimes I feel like it's actually engaging. Yeah. Like It's kind of fun to look down and be like, what are the numbers? Interesting. So I'm trying to get you to run with the chorus arm band today on your run just yes. to give yeah. it a test, see how you like it. Are you going to do it or not? I think I will. Yeah. Okay. What do you, what are you, what's your take on this? I think you should. I, I think data, it's not about the data. It's about your relationship to the data. Which could happen with many other things yeah. in life too. Like I feel like this is just a parallel for checking in with your relationship on how it is. But I have a lot of athletes that have very healthy relationships with heart rate monitors and, my and data. In general, it's like we're in charge of our self-judgment. And acting like you can't be exposed at all to certain things, it's cutting yourself short and it's just going to find a new avenue to express itself. So instead of that, what I say is have the data, change your watch face so you're not looking at it, have it for analysis if you want to see it. But if you don't want to see it, don't look. And that don't look part, I think it's a decision everyone can make. But contrasted, but as I'm saying that, I'm like, if social media is bad for you, you shouldn't be on social media. (laughs) Actually, I was just thinking about that as the parallel. But I mean, I feel like there is, like a lot of people have jobs, like 
part of our, like how we've grown swap is through social media. That's true. And we've had to learn over time, like how to have a healthier relationship with it. And so I do think like there are areas, it's very similar to the heart rate discussion. And I mean, think about your growth, like tying it all full circle, like ghost Megan is lives in the data, right? Like mm-hmm. the data of ghost Megan is so insane and you're going to be back there. You will, I promise. But like, You've had I'll be to learn- zombie, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> Farm upstate, Megan. You've had to learn how to get there to where you can accept the data as you see it now. And it's been so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I apply that to almost every, like, I mean, I feel like apply that to social media, apply that to heart rate, apply that to all different things. And it's been amazing. Why? Why has this happened? I don't know. I'm just getting old. Just kidding. Actually, I thought yeah. about that. I was out with Leo yesterday randomly in the play- playground. And it's like, by the time I'm 70, like, yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's just been like kind of this linear decline yeah. of not necessarily like I do think it's important. I truly care a lot. Like it's not like I'm not giving any fucks, but like, you know, it's just like a nice linear decline of like the stuff that doesn't matter. I love that. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, this to finish off. Well, no, we're going to save listener corner for just a sec, but in that iron and mental health discussion, I skipped a message we got from a listener. Oh, this one is good. I, but the reason I skipped it is because that was such an important discussion and this is a less important. So I want to make it very clear, but this is from an athlete that uh, wrote in interesting discussion on iron. You know, I have had many iron infusions, but I haven't needed one since starting AG one. It's the only reason we justify the cost of AG one. Um, it's the only se- thing that seems to have helped me hold on to iron. I have no idea why, but it doesn't seem to be a coincidence since I've been getting infusions since high school and this athlete's in their fifties now. So I just want to point out, we get actually a lot of messages that I shield you from saying, you guys are so science driven. Why do you support like AG1? And it's like, there's two reasons. Number one, we like it ourselves. Number two, and number and, and within that, I'm going to frame in. Actually, we like it so much ourselves that it was very important for me, the timing of it before racing, because yeah. like it really does truly impacts my heart rate response, impacts how I feel. It and is so energy. Yeah. Multivitamin with adaptogens um, and probiotics and prebiotics. So it's just basically an insurance policy. It's not greens. It's not... Um, you know, going to cure any disease. It's definitely, I don't think the iron rationale is necessarily like, you know, foolproof. It just points out that we get so many messages about how much it helps people. This is not something we make up for number two, which is money. (laughs) (laughs) We do get a little bit of your purchases. So we have to be honest about that. So, um, you know, basically what we're trying to do is say, Hey, this helps some people. If you can afford it, it's probably worth it to give it a try, a one-month try. If you click on lock offer at drinkag1.com slash swap SWAP, get some vitamin D on it too. But at the same time, it's not going to cure any disease. It's not going to do the things that this listener says probably. But for some people, it's like it was for us. We took this for many months before we were sponsored um, because it makes us feel better. Yeah. And it's also a love language too. So when traveling this weekend, I had a feeling that you might forget to pack AG1. Uh So I packed enough for you. And on the morning that you realized that you forgot it, I pulled it out. And I was oh. like, this is love. I could hear angels singing. <laughs> ah, don't stop believing. Um, so drinkag1.com slash swap, SWAP. Okay, finally, we're going to do Listener Corner. This one is so cool. And oh, this is so groovy. I scrolled up to a different one than the one we had listed because it is so inspiring. And we asked if we could share this and we could. So this is from a listener named Larry Stevens who just set a world record. Here's his message. I hope you, Megan, and Lucky Leo are doing well. I want to thank you for helping me out, even if I may not have followed every single one of your comments, in particular your last comment, which was, hill workouts would be your best option for speedy type work. You initially had me do a threshold workout to predict my lactate 
to threshold numbers using heart rate. And you know what? It was hard, but I liked it. So I added in different types of threshold workouts into my weekly routine along with hill repeats. I did that for six weeks. And on January 1st, my threshold day, I pulled up lame with a hamstring strain. Race day was in six weeks. So I cut my training way back. And after two weeks, started building again and then tapered for two weeks. Race day was last Saturday, and I set three USA American track age group records, 65 to 69, at the Raven 24-hour in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Later, we found out these were world records. Okay, mic drop. So cool. That's wild. 100 miles in 16 hours, 38 minutes. 24 hours, 127.7 miles. And then the listener goes back. I really believe it was the threshold workouts along with the hill repeats that increased my fatigue resistance. So thank you. Without our previous interactions surrounding lactate threshold, I don't think my fitness level would have been to sustain sub 10 minute miles for 100 miles. You're the best. And I really mean that. I'm going to lay low on threshold workouts for a while, (laughs) but I may bring them back in the future when the hamstring is all good, but perhaps every other week. Keep inspiring. Your impact, even if it's not exactly followed, can have wonderful consequences. Cheers, Larry. What a badass. Yeah. That is, I was like fully processing how far this listener (laughs) went in the 65 to 69 age group category. That is so cool. What an athlete. And what I love about this is just like the process of change as an athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Racing your ghost self, that there's so many opportunities for exploration at different edges. Like, Yes, it's not going to lead to a world record for almost anybody on the planet. Like this is one of the best athletes in the world, objectively. But for everybody else, there's all these different ways that you don't not, don't have to race your ghost self. You can be exploring new avenues, new things you can do, new big scary things. You can be a new zombie. New zombie? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's within your power. My big goal athletically is that I don't necessarily, you know, who knows? I might have already peaked. I don't think so. I think I got more years ahead of me. Oh, you for sure have more years ahead of you. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm going to push it back really far. But after I'm sure the peak has passed, I want to embody this athlete. I want to embody Larry and keep putting myself out there, trying new things, reaching out to people like he reached out to us, asking for advice and learning at my own personal edge. And if you're out there, find an edge, find something scary, something really big in 2024 coming up and do it. Sign up for it. Not because you're even going to excel, but because that process can be so damn motivating. What are you going to do that's scary in 2024? Oh, I mean, there's so many different things. Well, one, I want to keep doing these ultra races. Every single ultra race I do, I'm so nervous and worried that it's going to turn out poorly. Actually, you just told me the other day, you're like, Megan, if I had the chance to just randomly run 100K on a weekend, I totally would. Like That's how much I love the distance. And I love it because it pushes me in a Mm -hmm. way that that the big alt to 28K wouldn't at this point in my career. Um, Outside of that, the the podcast every week is an act of vulnerability. It's true. Yeah. Um, How about you? What's the big scary thing? I think I know the answer. Doing 100K. Doing 100K. Yes. Less than nine weeks, Megan. And also what we talked about in terms of like, you know, I left my job yeah. to do something different yeah. and I'm actively doing something different and it's really fun. I, I like, I don't know. I relinquished to your drip over time. Yeah. My drip, Meg, <laughs> as I talked about in the shoe discussion, my drip influences people. In fact, we're going to actually be able to do more shoe reviews. We had a company, which we're not going to mention until we do it, reach out to give us free shoes that we're going to be getting to talk to more because people love our shoe reviews. Which is your dream. And yes. it's also our accountant's dream because the amount of shoes that we bought last year was scary. Oh my God. We did. We at least did some of our expenses. And I was worried that our credit card got stolen <laughs> by, by Saucony. Because I'm like, why do we have so many? I don't remember wearing Saucony's. Like I know Hoka stole our credit card. I know Nike stole our credit card, but Saucony too. I have a problem. It's a shoe problem. 
but it's going to be rectified for our shoe <laughs> review segment, uh, which is coming up. And so, you know what I want to do, Megan? What? Actually, you're doing exactly what everyone should do. Put your problems to good use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, though. It would kind of be like a drug addict being like, I'm going to review various drugs. <laughs> Here is heroin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Heroin is lovely. <laughs> no, no. It's not Heroin's lovely. very bad. Yes, very terrible. Yes. But I mean, evidenced by my THC discussion. Yes. But it was like me talking about that for sure. So I don't know. This year is going to be so fun. We're going to rally so many damn horses. It's rally be- all those horses and the zombies. And the zombies. And most of all, don't stop believing. Woohoo! Oh, I, I know. I actually didn't know the lyric that came. Oh, Megan, it's hold I on know. to the feeling. Can you do it? Hold on to, to the, the feeling. feeling. Thank you for joining. And I also don't know the cadence on that. Huzzah! <laughs>